0: This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it can't be complained about by my co-host, John Siracusa. Today is Friday. It's March 23rd, 2012. This is episode number 60. We'd like to say thanks to our three sponsors today, FreshBooks.com, Gitbox, Gitboxapp.com, and BBEdit. ...from the guys at Bare Bones. Tell me more about them as the show continues. Hello, John Syracuse.
1: Hello, Dan Benjamin.
0: How's your day going today? It's hot. Hot day?
1: Yeah, supposed to be in the mid-70s today.
0: Wow, I don't know how you stand it.
1: Yep. We're going to have a short show today. That's what's going to happen. What do you think of that?
0: I'll believe it when I believe it.
1: Yeah, me too. That's the plan. Ready for some follow-up?
0: Absolutely. Okay.
1: This show is mostly follow-up, this one. And one small topic at the end.
0: Do you feel like that you will clear out all of the follow-up and you'll be able to start fresh?
1: No, because they keep sending more every week. So see. This is the problem with follow-up. If no one ever responds to a show with, with emails or tweets or whatever, then there'll be no follow-up.
0: So In a way, it's, it's very much a user-driven show. It's a responsive show
1: responsive yeah at least at least the first half of each one is because what they're responding to is usually not follow-up from the previous show it's whatever i talked about whatever new stuff i talked about all right first bit is about the ios version of iPhoto i talked about how I, the app was a little the ui of the app was a little inscrutable to me and i couldn't quite figure out how to do everything and one of the things i talked about was my inability to discover that you could take the thumbnails and change them from one side to the other. And I couldn't figure out what gesture did that. And someone named Amnon on Twitter said that the only way that you can drag the thing from one side to the other is to grab the little title bar handle thing on the thumbnails and move it. And, you know, that's not a difficult gesture. Why was I not grasping that? And so I looked at it and he's right. And the reason I was confused by it was that When I saw the video, it looked just like this big sweeping gesture. So I'd just make this grand sweeping gesture with my finger and it would work sometimes because if you start the drag in the little handle area but then quickly leave it, it still works. So I was fooling myself into thinking there was a complicated gesture to do this when in reality, it's a very constrained gesture. You have to start in that little grippy area. After that, you can leave it, I guess. Uh, So part of the iOS thing uh, is without mouse cursor to see in a demonstration, it's not always clear what the person is doing to the iOS application. That's why I kind of like those, those screencasts where they have that little circle that shows where the person's finger is and like those little, I don't know, what you call it, little rings go out from it where you can see with, when they tap with their finger or something. Those are very useful. So thanks to Amnon for that correction. And speaking of iOS for I followed, mere minutes before the show began today, Stephen Frank, co-founder of Panic, made two tweets. He said... This is, I don't know who he's talking to, but he's talking to the Twitterverse in general. He says, I thought you were exaggerating, but iPhoto for iOS really is bizarre. The cloud slider amuses me, though I have no idea what it does. I think he's referring to some of those little slider controls where it has like a cloud background and you slide the little cloud back and forth on this weird colored field. That It's it's interesting looking, but he has no idea what it does. And then he followed that up right after a couple seconds later saying, but whenever I criticize a weird iOS UI, there's always a nagging concern that maybe I'm just too old and everyone else understands immediately. I don't know. Is that the case? I've seen a lot of people puzzled by the iPhoto for iOS UI upon first seeing it, and I think Apple acknowledges that with the with the prominent help and tooltips. I can't think of another Apple iOS app I've seen that has a button that springs up little yellow explanations of what everything on the screen does. You know, they didn't have to do that for Mail or uh, Safari or any of the other app. Even even iMovie. Does iMovie have that? I don't know. I haven't played with it. So I don't think it's just me and Steven and and the other old people. I think that it really is a weird uh, UI. But again, I don't think that's necessarily bad. It's just there's a steeper learning curve. I think once you get used to it and know what everything does, uh, it will be okay. Connor Porter says that I have a total misunderstanding of the smart cover. When I was discussing, I don't know which particular aspect, but here's what he says. It's in a tweet, so it's compressed. Remove smart cover, fold into a triangle, pinch metal bar between fingers, and wipe screen. Have you ever Have you ever heard of this or done it yourself I' have not done that i 've never heard of this i 've never heard of anyone doing it, but as soon as I started googling it around, sure enough, you can find lots of people taking their smart cover off, folding it into a triangle shape, using the metal magnetic spine thing to hold it, and using it like a like a squeegee or a chamois to, <laughs> well, to not, uh, not
0: a chamois a chamois, is, a chamois, a chamois absorbs, is like a
1: cloth yeah, it absorbs the liquid from after you dry your car or or more you wash like a your squeegee
0: car. though because a chamois... Uh, well, you, you hope know. it's
1: like a squeegee, but I think it's like a chamois. A squeegee pushes the water off of a, of a flat surface. The chamois absorbs the liquid. And I think <laughs> this thing is absorbing your finger <laughs> grease in, into the microfiber. Terrible. Yeah. <laughs> so I responded that I thought that was ridiculous. That you would <laughs> remove your cover and fashion it into a cleaning device and use it to wipe your screen down. And that's how you get rid of the little lines. Do you
0: find that there, you're creating a lot of smudging on The screen, is this a problem for you or for people, do you think?
1: I don't think it's a problem in general because, first of all, you've seen, like, the general population, if you divide the population into screen touchers and non-screen touchers, this is before touch-based devices, Mm -hmm. I think there were more screen touchers than non-screen touchers. Yeah, the the picky geeks like us didn't want people touching our computer monitors, but if you just went through the average office and looked at all the computer screens, they're covered with fingerprints. So even screens that you didn't have to touch, people had no problem touching and smudging up. (laughs) Now that you're supposed to touch the screens, I, I rarely see people complaining about it. And it doesn't bother me that much on the iPad. It bothers me more on the iPod Touch, and I don't know why. Maybe it's because like, I hold it closer to my face and I, can, and I catch more of it on an angle or whatever. Or maybe, maybe it is a smart cover, mostly keeping the, the screen clean. But people's fingers produce different amounts of oils and different types of oils. So I think it all comes down to who's using it and then what their tolerance is for smudges. But in general, I don't see this as a problem. And sh- you know how much press any possible problem with any of Apple's iOS devices gets. So surely if this was actually a, a concern, someone would have written a sensational story about it. Apple's iOS devices rendered useless by finger spoo. I don't think that is the headline that I've seen. So I, d- I think it just doesn't bother people. Chris Porter also says that he agrees with me that the hinges, the little little hinges on the smart cover can crack glass because his dad did that.
0: Ooh.
1: So that's bad. And uh, the aluminum does get scratched. I knew that because I've done that. All right. Uh, Mark Booth is the stand-in for the ongoing angst over the iPad name. You would think this would die, but no. I continue to get lots of feedback about it. And I put him as a stand-in because he covers all the bases. I'll cover them again. Uh, Oh, no, I read the wrong name. That's not what Mark Booth's problem is. Rewind, reset. Okay, Mark Booth wrote a a blog post about the iPad, particularly about the smart cover. Uh, And he discovered that his uh, smart cover or some smart covers that were purchased before the introduction of the iPad, the new iPad, don't work the right way with the new iPad because they don't do the the wake-sleep thing correctly. And so he investigated this and found that some iPad 2 customers were having issues with their iPads entering sleep mode when they flip the cover around to the back. Like they're opening the smart cover and just wrapping it around to the back and the thing would go back to sleep. And that was because uh, the theory goes that the magnets in the smart cover were like sort of reaching around and activating the little sleep magnet trigger that's on the front of the iPad. So sometime in 2011, sometime last year, Apple changed all its smart covers and change the polarity of the magnets that make the thing go to sleep, so that when it's wrapped around on the back, uh, it has less of a chance of activating it. And the iPad 3 apparently is sensitive to that polarity, and if you have one of the old smart covers that doesn't have the reverse polarity magnet in that particular thing, uh, it it won't put the thing to sleep and wake it up. So what he did was ripped open his smart cover and flipped around the magnet thing, so it's upside down (laughs) in that last panel, to confirm his hypothesis that reversing the polarity of the magnet didn't work you you thought reversing the polarity was something I only did on Star Trek but here's an actual legitimate use of reversing the polarity that actually solved the problem so I put uh, a link to his blog post in the show notes and he is not the one who complained about the name but we will get to that later in the follow up let me read what these people say before I read their name (laughs) So Robert Mooney was the first person to tell me that the Apple TV has a feature that allows it to learn a different remote. I, I, last show, I complained a lot about the Apple TV remote, uh, and we'll have more on that later in the follow-up. Uh, but he was the very first person to respond to me via Twitter that if I go into settings, general remotes, learn remote, there's a really cool interface where you uh, the, the different functions of the remote, like up, down, left, right, and select, you go through them one at a time, and you basically point the remote that you want to use, and it says, please press the button that you would like to be up. So you hold down the button that's supposed to be up, and a little progress bar fills. Then it comes to the next thing. It says, please press the button that you want to be down. So you hold the down button, the progress bar fills. So what I did was I pulled out one of my many old TiVo remotes and uh, because I wanted to use that to control the Apple TV, and I just set it up to use the Apple TV. It has a five-way thing, so I used up, down, left, right, and select. And there's another screen for a setting, what do you want to be fast forward, rewind, skip forward, skip backwards, stop, play, pause. The only good one was stop because there's not really a stop button on the TiVo remote, there's just a pause. Uh, so that worked great and it allowed me to take, my, uh, th- take the Apple TV remote out of the room and not have to have it there at all and not have to worry about all the things that I didn't like about it. The only wrinkle with my setup was that I actually configured the same TiVo remote two times because I, wasn't, I couldn't decide which button I wanted to use as the menu button. On the Apple TV remote, the menu button is like down and to the left from, from the center of the the five-way pad. Back into the left. Down and to the left. Oh, I see. And there is a button down and to the left on the TiVo remote. Uh, it's the aspect button, I think. And I said, well, why don't I just use that once and it's like muscle memory for like where the thing is on both remotes. But I, But the button that I tend to use to go back on the TiVo remote is the TiVo button, the very top center button. So I wanted to program both of them to do menu, And I had to set up the same remote twice to do that because you go through the setup once and pick one of the buttons, then go through the whole setup again a second time with the exact same remote, but simply make a different choice for the menu button. So now I have my TiVo remote working with my Apple TV and two possible buttons I can use uh, to go back. The only thing I had to do was label this remote so it's distinguishable from the actual TiVo remote by the people who are. How did you label it? My wife has a label maker thing. I just wrote Apple TV on a little label and stuck it on. It's so the kids can tell the difference. The adults could tell because the, the there are different buttons on the two TiVo remotes. The one for the premiere has like the the colored buttons, and this is an old one from the uh, from an old TiVo HD, and it doesn't have the colored buttons. Um, the only tricky part for the TiVo thing, and I already went through this, so I didn't have to relearn it, is of course I have a TiVo sitting in front of the TV, and in general, any TiVo remote will con- will control any TiVo. So first thing I had to do was convince one of my spare TiVo remotes not to or convince my TiVo not to accept signals from this TiVo remote. And if you Google for that, there's this crazy procedure that is very confusing. And the, the most most confusing thing is that when you're on the screen, this like the the TiVo information screen, when you're on that screen, almost anything you do with any TiVo remote will tell the TiVo, oh, I better listen to this one. And I guess that's so people don't lock themselves out of their TiVo. Like if you if you accidentally do something with TiVo remote and then you've convinced your TiVo not to listen to it, how do you convince it to start listening to it again? Like you have no way to input because there's not many buttons on the front of the thing. So that screen is, uh, it errs on the side of not locking you out. So if you touch a TiVo remote at all, the, Ti- that, the TiVo goes, oh, I better listen to that remote. So you really have to follow this regimented procedure of like set the number on this thing to this thing by blocking it, you know, don't allow the IR to go out, shove the thing behind a couch cushion and do the buttons. But then, you know, so it can be done. And I encourage everyone to Google around for how to do that TiVo site has instructions, your TiVo manual itself has instructions, but it is possible to configure a TiVo remote not to control one or more TiVos. And actually, if you have a remote that has a little switch on it, there's like a one, two switch, you can use the same TiVo remote too. Control 2 different things. But believe it or not, the Premier Elite remote does not have a switch on it. So I had to actually have two table remotes down here. So finally, here we are. James Scariati. He's the one who uh, I'm using as my stand for complaining about iPad numbers. A A lot of people have the complaint that they think this works for Macs, like iMac doesn't have a number at the end of it or whatever, because they don't sell multiple generations of hardware alongside each other. So the model that's currently on sale is always the new one by definition. Now, I kept trying to look this up, and it was difficult to tell from the... I was looking it up on like these, you know, everymac.com or lowendmac.com and the Mac Tracker application. But my memory is that they sold the white MacBook alongside the aluminum MacBook for some period of time. And they were both called MacBook, and they would call one of them white or whatever. Is that your recollection as well?
0: That's mine as well, but they were different products. They were, they were all in the MacBook family but they were they were separate versions. It wasn't right. like one was old, one was n- new. Although one might have been older and newer, they were separate.
1: Right, but so... Didn't I'm, not, I'm take, like, not disagreeing
0: with you. I'm, yeah, agree, I, I'm agreeing I, with
1: well, you. Uh, yeah, it's hard to say like... well, The thing is, since they're so visually different and since you could say, well, like that one's just the white one, you know, the, the, what, say the iPad 4 comes out and it looks exactly like the iPad 3. People would say, well, that's different because the white macbook it's made of a different material one's plastic and one is metal so it was clear to tell the difference even though i think they're both they both were called macbook and then maybe they had some stuff in parentheses uh i don't know it's it's a it's a tough call on whether it's the same situation or not and so he continues this isn't the case with the with ipads or iphones where they keep the previous generation around at lower price points and so they've done this with three generations because you can get a 3gs now a 4 and a 4s for example with the phones uh, how will they differentiate next year's new iPad from today's? That's a, a common refrain from everybody. And how will they differentiate if they have three models? Say they keep selling the two, then they keep selling the three, and then they sell the four. So you've got one called two, and then one called iPad, and one called iPad. Uh, many people have pointed out how this is unprecedented in many other things. You know, not just uh, Apple's hardware, but also cars and stuff. Cars is a little bit fuzzier because when they make a new platform, like we talked about last time with the, the new BMW 3 Series platform, or they do it with the 911 or whatever, they, the Porsche 911, they don't immediately, don't always immediately put every single car onto the new platform. So for example, on the, the BMW 3 Series, they make the 3 Series sedan, they make the 3 Series coupe, they make the M3, which is a sportier version, they make a convertible, and they also make a convertible M3. And when the new platform comes out, say, oh, the, you know, the F30 BMW 3 Series is out. You can't run out and get a convertible M3 version of that car they sort of dole them out. So the first thing that comes out is the four-door sedan, and then maybe the coupe, and then the M3 after that. And, and same thing with the 911s. You can't always get the 911 turbo immediately when the new uh, 911s go on sale. And so then you have a period of time where if you were to go into a BMW dealership, they would say, uh, you, you might say, I'm interested in, in a, th- a small convertible. They said, well, here we have the BMW 3 Series convertible. And you would buy it, and they would sell it to you even though it's not based on the new 3-series platform because they simply haven't come out with a convertible version of that yet. I don't think they stop making those, and I don't think they just say, oh, sell our old stock. I think they continue to manufacture the old E90 platform uh, 3-series convertibles. I'm not sure. Someone who knows more about BMWs can tell me, but certainly I do know that When they rev the platform, which is sort of what they did with the iPad 3, you know, when it's got a new screen, a new CPU, you know, new GPU in the CPU, more RAM, all that. When they rev the platform for cars, they don't always rev the platform across the entire board. So there's some period of time where old and new mix together. Uh, But with all these concerns... And all these people saying, what are they going to do? How are they going to differentiate? I still go back to my practical considerations that I talked about last time. And the two practical considerations that I haven't heard anyone contest, but few people actually bring up in their complaints about the name is, will this decrease sales? And will this decrease customer satisfaction? And I still come down and saying, no, I don't think it will decrease sales. If you want an iPad, you're going to get I- you're going an iPad. Will it decrease customer satisfaction? Any confusion that comes from this, I don't think will make people say, I don't like to buy Apple products because it's so confusing. I think this will get sorted out in the store, in the Apple store, and it'll be very clear which ones they're buying. And I don't think anyone will come away accidentally buying the wrong model and being disappointed, being disappointed with it. And in fact, I think if someone really didn't know, it was totally clueless, and bought themselves an iPad 2 now, they would be completely satisfied with it. They would have no idea what they're missing with the iPad 3. Like you know, I they know nothing about Apple products and have no idea. I just don't think that this naming issue will hurt them in sales or satisfaction. And I think it helps them in the the realm of perception and in aligning their products without having to worry about numbers, you know, trying to make it more like the iMac, for example. So people are free to disagree. And we will see when, I guess, next year, when the next iPad comes out, depending on what they name it, if they were all right and I was wrong on this. This person's name is J-A-N-N-I-S, but they're German. Would you go with Janis on that? Janig. Janig? With a G at the end. Do you speak German? Is that why you know this? No, I I'm just guessing. All right. Well, J A N N I S Kuchars is one of the many Germans to point out that in Germany things are different. Yes, of course, in Germany things are different. Uh and there people, the common people really do know the the platforms of the car, but many people brought the same example, the Volkswagen Golf. Everybody knows if it's a Golf 2, Golf 3, Golf 4 or Golf 5. And those aren't those aren't model years, those are generations. So the Golf 3 will be out for a few years and they'll have like, you know, several different years of that thing because the people around there know what the platforms are of their cars. Marcus Henschen says exactly the same thing. The Golf, will, he uses Roman numerals, Golf 1, 2, and 3. Uh, Peugeot models, there was an actual model number like 205, 206, 207, and a 208. So apparently in Europe, especially in countries where the I would imagine in Germany it's because the car makers that are in Germany are closely tied with the national identity. You've got uh, Volkswagen and, and BMW and Mercedes. And I think there's much more awareness uh, of car models in that country because it's a smaller country and those car car, car companies are so much larger. You know, those are worldwide brands that everybody knows about that are a point of pride. Uh, whereas in the U.S., I guess, I don't think people knew what platform, you know, they didn't know about the K cars and what platforms are underlying Fords or Chevys and stuff like that. Maybe it's just because Americans always expect to be at the top of everything and it's not that important when I mean, we were the biggest car maker in the world until all of a sudden we aren't and then it's important. So, as always, things are different outside the U.S. I talked about on my Apple TV in the last show uh, my confusion at the menu that was letting me pick different kinds of HDMI output. And... I didn't quite know uh, what auto meant and what RGB high meant and what RGB low meant, but I also talked about this YCBCR output. And I had said that I looked that up somewhere and it was a way, uh, a, a technique of compression where you'd, you'd send the luminance, but then send the uh, the color channels in a compressed fashion because they weren't as important. Uh, so... Alex Strange writes in to say that my implication that this might be a lower quality source than RGB is untrue because, in general, they're they're broadcast in that same format. Actually, they're broadcast in YUV, which is similar to YCbCr, or the same anyway. So if they're broadcast in that format, if you were to straight through display it in that format, you're not losing any particular quality. Uh, So that's not necessarily wrong or only used for old CRTs, as I suggested in the last show. Chris Herbert made a good attempt to explain it to me. He tried to explain it on a tweet, I think, and I suggested, as I, as I do many times to people who send me things in tweets, I say, write a blog post about it, and I'll link it. So he did write a blog post about it, uh, and I linked it in the show notes of his attempt to explain this, and his explanation was the first one that started to make sense to me about what the RGB high and low might be. So here's the important distinction. On computers, total black is represented by the value zero, and total white is 255, so that's an 8-bit range for going completely black to completely white, or, you know, completely red to completely unred. So you've got RGB values, and each one of them has a value from 0 to 255. Uh, The full 8-bit range is used for each component. But on television and in digital video in general, and I did not know this, black is 16 and white is 235. Did you know this? I did not know that. This is news to me. So uh, the space above and below these levels is what they call headroom which was necessary when TVs were analog and didn't respond well to hard clipping at the bottom and top ends of the video signal I'm reading from his uh, email here. Uh, some people even argue that this headroom is still useful even, today, even for today's digital televisions, and there is, in fact, some additional picture information in the whiter-than-white portion of the signal, particularly when showing very bright things like clouds, white shirts, etc. So, he doesn't know for sure what Apple is calling RGB high and RGB low, but he's guessing that the correct setting for most TVs will be to use the standard video color space, which is at 16 to 235, which is likely, he thinks this is likely what Apple is calling RGB high. As this is what video content is encoded with and what properly designed televisions are expecting. Uh, the RGB low mode is expanding the 16 to 235 data, expanding that into zero to 255 range that a computer monitor might expect. for example, so a computer monitor expects zero to 255, expects zero to be black, doesn't expect 16, 16 to be black. Uh, so if you were to send if you were to, to send zero to two fifty-five to your television set, one of two things can happen, right? Uh first, maybe that your television always expects a 16 to 235 signal. And it will just discard all the data below 16 and all the data above 235. And then everything will be all washed out because nothing will be completely black, because all your complete blacks are at zero, and the TV just discarded them because it discards everything below sixteen, and you'll lose stuff on the high end. So this will have a very negative impact on picture quality, and you don't want this. The second is that your television will realize it's receiving a 0 to 255 PC-style signal and will just readjust itself, in which case everything should be fine. You might see some kind of gradient banding if your television does a bad job of taking that range and changing it back to what it expects or whatever. So really what this comes down to is... uh, uh, Oh, Here's another person wrote in to tell me that uh, Dan Dan Sturm wrote in to tell me that really what you want to make sure is that the incoming signal and the television agree on everything. So if your television always expects a certain mode, you send it that mode. But if you're you know, you don't want to force it to be into a 0 to 255 if your television is not expecting that because bad things will happen. You really just want your television expectations and the input to agree, which is why he suggests that leaving an auto was the correct decision because presumably he has faith that auto We'll find some way to negotiate with the television and send it the signal it's suggesting. Uh, so this isn't as complicated as I. Well, I don't know. Maybe it is the same thing because I know there's a similar setting. There's a setting on my television that says uh, accept input values that are outside the range of a normal the normal television specification. And there's also a setting I think on the PlayStation that tells it to output that thing. But for for this, I'm I feel better about leaving it on auto because it's basically say so leave it up to the television and the device to negotiate. And I think most modern TVs will accept and adjust all these formats. But it sounds to me like not sending a 0 to 255 value to your television is the right thing to do, and hopefully that's what my devices have sorted out amongst themselves. And I did change the settings and looked at pictures, and I couldn't tell a difference. So I imagine it's because my television says, oh, I'm getting a signal in this format, and it senses it and does the right thing. Mike F. from Across the Pond writes in to tell us that uh, the reason... That the UK, or one reason he speculates that the UK might have a bunch of amateur, this is quoting from from him, amateurish looking DVRs you've never heard of, is that their television greatly simplifies the job of DVRs. So the video in the UK apparently arrives already encoded uh, in a, a usable format, so they can just dump that right to disk, so they don't need an encoder at all for the video. They can just take the bit perfect stream and put it right onto disk. The program guide is apparently sent with the video, so you don't even need a network connection. So the list of when the show is on or what time or whatever comes along in the same signal as the video. So you don't need a network connection for your DVR. And channels are bundled into something called multiplexes. So a DVR with a single tuner can record multiple channels if they happen to be multiplexed into the same stream. Uh, so that's interesting. It's interesting that their, their television infrastructure is more conducive to, to DVRs. Uh, than apparently ours is so for, because certainly we we need a program guide we don't get the program information along with our video signals in general. Anthony Johnson also in the UK says that the HUMAX machines that I talked about last time are the least worst option available in the UK, just like Tivo is in the US. So not not all big fans of these brands that I talked about last time. He also talks about the awful weird brand names. He he speculates that it might be because in the UK they believe Asian electronics are superior and they like the idea of bad fake English names to make them seem nicer. This is his theory. I have no idea whether that's accurate or not. I just do know that Humax is a strange name. Dov Frankel writes in to tell me that I inspired him to go through and turn all of his paper manuals into PDFs. I think a couple shows ago I talked about my smoke detector and how I had to Uh, find the manual. I had the paper manual, but I I couldn't search it. So I wanted a PDF version of it. And I said the PDF versions of most of the manuals for your appliances are available online. So he did a blog post that I linked in the show notes where he showed his junk drawer full of those paper manuals that come with all your appliances and devices. And his wife was nagging him to get rid of that. And he wanted to uh, clear out that drawer. But uh, he says that his monkey brain was telling him I might need it someday. So Finally, he couldn't get rid of the manuals. What he did instead was found them all in PDF form and put them all into iBooks on his iOS device. And he had things like his manuals from his Sega Genesis and his Nintendo 64. So obviously, he's a little bit of a pack rat here. Uh, But he says the other day he was sitting in his car and trying to pair his phone with his Bluetooth handset and couldn't remember something about it. And he just pulled up his iPhone, pulled up his manual and PDF and looked it up. So here's a way to declutter your life, turning this into a Back to Work episode Take all of your paper manuals that you have filed somewhere and convert them all to PDFs and then recycle all of that paper. It's faster, easier, more searchable, and it will make you feel cool and high-tech. So good job, Dove, on that. And we have... All right, now now we're into the transitional period of the follow-up. We have a question from Justin Bakes. He asks why doesn't the file system keep track of how much data is in every folder? And he's complaining that like, if he gets info on in his home directory, and the little get info window in the finder comes up, it grinds and grinds and grinds and takes a long time to tell you how much data is in the folder. And he says DU from the command line takes a long time too. Why doesn't the file system just keep track of this as contents are changed? That would be nice. Do you want to take this one? Why doesn't the file system keep track of uh, the contents of folders?
0: In other words, so that you can very easily and quickly get the size, get other data out of it, it without it having to do that calculation every time that you ask.
1: Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I, I'm going to speculate. I've never really thought about this, but I think my, the reason I haven't thought about it is because I just assume my speculation is correct. Okay. But update, if, if you had a situation like that, that would mean that every time IO is done to any file anywhere below a particular folder, you would have to update the, those numbers that you're keeping track of for every folder in that path. Uh, so that for the, so for the first thing means you'd have to keep track of or repeatedly look up which directories uh are in this file's path and in the unix file system once you get a, a file descriptor it's just an integer and in general you're not retaining information about the, every directory along the path all the way up to the root of the file system so you'd have to store that and that's currently not being stored and then of course there's contention for the all these numbers so if any other files are being modified that that along the same path anywhere along the same path you would have to grab some sort of mutex and say, okay, everybody else stay out. I'm going to update that number because I just added three bytes of data. So this directory has three more bytes and its parent directory has three more bytes and its parent directory has three more bytes and all the way up to the top. All right, I'm done. I release all my locks. Okay, you can go. That seems like it would be a massive bottleneck to IO performance if you had to keep updating those numbers. Because remember, you can't update them like when you're done or when a big file is done being written. There is no, there's no waiting until done because what is done you'd have to write it every time you did I.O. Right, and imagine so had, if you
0: were s- recording streaming video or something like that.
1: Yeah, or like just untarring a big tarball and, right. you know, splatting, or running an installer. You would spend all your time, you know, and so maybe it, this doesn't sound so bad in HFS+, Plus because already only one process can be modifying the catalog at once, but let's not drag every file system down to be like HFS+. Plus. Uh, and I believe actually HFS+, Plus does keep more track of this stuff than other file systems, because like, hey, I'm locking the whole catalog file anyway, and only one process can be modifying the file system anyway, but... In general, the answer is that would produce too much contention. Uh, that's what I think Why file systems don't do that. And so when you get info on it, then it grinds over everything and looks it up at that time. And believe me, you'd rather have it. Are you okay? What was that? It's in your house. It was in my house? Yeah. I do not know. You have what a cat that, in there or something? No, I don't. Nothing in this room. I heard that noise and I thought it came over the loud, uh, The Uh, Headphones. No, it's on your track. Uh, I'll take your word for it. No, but nothing (laughs) nothing has crashed down in this room. Maybe something is going on outside that I don't know about.
0: I would go check.
1: All right, hang on a second.
0: All right, I'll do a sponsor while you do that. Okay. Sponsor today is a great new one. It's Gitbox. So uh, most of you, I'm assuming this in the audience, are probably developers or designers or writers, or you create something. So you probably heard about Git. It's a version control system. Everybody should be using some kind of version control system no matter what you do. The problem with Git is it's very command line intensive and even people like me who use Git every single day don't know all of the things that you can do on the command line and you constantly have to look things up. And when it gets into the really tricky stuff like rebasing commits, or resetting a branch, I mean, you almost always have to go to terminal to figure this out. That means you have to look stuff up and that slows you down. It makes you not want to use it. it takes away some of the benefit of it. Well, Gitbox will change all of that. Imagine if your Git client was really, really easy to use. Of course, we're talking about something for the Mac here. Uh, and it was really easy to use, and it worked just like Mail App. But for Git, I mean, it, what if it could keep you from screwing up things like committing new versions outside of a branch, uh, full text search, visual comparison of file differences, all of that stuff. It's integrated. All of these hard-to-do things that you wish you were able to do more readily Gitbox lets you do them. I love Gitbox. I started using it when they showed some interest in being a sponsor. And man, I love it. I I haven't even touched the command line since I started using it. Uh, So here's what you do. You go to gitboxapp.com. You can download the free trial. And if you like it, well, you should buy it. They're giving a 50% discount right now. It's uh, $9.99. So go check this out, gitboxapp.com. When you want to buy it, you buy it in the App Store. It's pretty awesome. Oh, and by the way, Command-Z, undo. How cool is that? Can't do that in a command line. Check it out. Are you back, John?
1: I am back. I investigated. I found nothing. I went outside the house. The only other person home is my wife. She's fine. Nothing appears to have fallen inside or outside our house. I have no idea what that was.
0: When it gets warm, like you're talking about up there, I think the rats start to get active.
1: Could have just been a truck driving by.
0: Be something in your walls?
1: No, the rats aren't that loud usually. Do you feed them or? No. Only poison. That's what they get fed. Okay. All right. So there's the uh, keeping track of contents of the file system question. Now, two two feisty bits of follow up here. All right. Need, need more of these things. Alexander Hoffman writes to tell me that the major barrier to statistical significance is not sample size, it's representativeness. I think on some past show I must have mentioned something about statistical significance and how I thought that uh, because we had a small sample size, it was probably the Chris Perillo stuff. Because I had a small sample size, this isn't necessarily representative and so on and so forth. And I generally try to use the right language there, but I'm sure I slip into the common Uh, definition of statistical significance, which does not agree with the real definition as in many cases, like the common understanding like, oh, if you don't have a lot of people, that must not be statistically significant, but it's not the number of people that counts. It's how representative they are of the larger population. So the the example, I think this is Chris Pearl thing, because he says, for example, you could talk to a million non-geeks and still not have a statistically significant sample if that million non-geeks were not representative of the larger population of non-geeks. For example, if you oversampled college grads or undersampled college grads or oversampling of the moms of hardcore geeks, etc. He says that the math we refer to when we mean statistical significance assumes random sampling. It does not assume any particular sample size. And virtually any effective size can be statistically significant if you have a large enough sample size. That's what it says here. Maybe you just confused me the last sense. Anyway, he says you're probably best not even bringing up the term, bringing the term up. I think he's right. I am probably best not even bringing the term up, and yet I probably will. So in the future, I will endeavor to (laughs) use this term in a correct manner and talk about that the sample is not representative and not that it's too small because representative is what matters and not size. I did take several statistics courses in college, but I confess that all of them have left my brain long ago. So here's here's the best one. Save the best one for last. Nick Modesto writes in to say that I am appalled by John's lack of attention to detail when it comes to the Apple TV remote. There are no lines for molding or where the manufacturer typically glues two halves together appears to be a sturdy, solid piece of aluminum. So I've got the remote right in front of me here. He is correct. I don't see any mold lines. It appears to be a nice, solid piece of aluminum, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. Like, how do they get the insides in? Do they shove it all in through the battery door? Uh, or is it just like fused together somehow? Very neat. Also, you don't mention how the menu button is concave and the play-pause button is slightly convex. You're constantly talking about having textures or shapes to help you discern which button of your your finger is on by how it feels. This oversight of such detail surprises me, especially on a remote that only has three buttons and a D-pad. The Apple TV remote is not some massive, bulbous hunk of plastic. You are not meant to grab grab this object and attempt to strangle it in order to keep hold of it like you do with a TiVo remote. It's a lightweight, well-balanced remote that just lies in the hand. I'm sure John, Sir Johnny would say that it floats in the hand. and He says, I'm almost positive that you are holding it wrong. Now I can't tell if he's just trolling me <laughs> because I'm holding it wrong. Right, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, I'm holding it wrong, very specifically like the iPhone 4.
0: <laughs> hold
1: it like you would hold a golf club or a, or a drumstick. Lightly wrap your fingers around the remote while it lies in your open hand. And then he uh, has a comment on the, the white light from the remote as well. Finally, hiding the Apple TV in order to hide the piercing, in quotes, white light, means that you are removing your ability to get visual feedback from the Apple TV unit. In the manual, you'll see there are a series of different patterns that the Apple TV device uses to communicate back to the user, especially when things are not working properly. Do this at your own risk. Don't complain in the future about a lack of visual feedback from the system when you're pounding on buttons and the system isn't responding to your commands. So, this is quite an angry email about me not liking the Apple TV remote. The points he made about it being solid and a a complete piece of aluminum are true. It's a pretty nice little construction here. One of them is convex, and one of them is concave, and the select button is actually concave as well, and then the ring is convex, which I didn't like. Uh, But no, I didn't note those two things. But I think this is a teachable moment in terms of weighing the relative importance of problems. A lot of the things I didn't mention, like how it's very solid and how the buttons are, are shaped differently... I never even got to talk about or consider those because right away, the size was the dominant factor for me, the size and the comfort of holding the thing. He says it's not a big, massive, bulbous hulk of plastic. I apparently like big, bulbous hunks of plastic like the Tivo remote. It feels more comfortable for me to hold. It feels more secure. It feels more comfortable to put in my hand. The mold lines, yeah, they exist on the Tivo remote. It's not constructed as well as this, but I don't feel them or notice them. So all these things that he likes about it, I would say they are good design, you know, having the buttons be shaped, uh, be, uh, want be convex and concave, that's a good idea, although I would say the position is more dominant, I could probably tell where they are based on the position more than the, the texture, but that's not bad. Uh, the concave nature of the ring, I think, is bad, because it makes it feel like my finger is shedding off of it, but really, the two things make me not like it, and the two things that I talked about. It just feels too small for, for me and uncomfortable to hold, because it's thin and small, and, like, you know, the you're holding it wrong thing is a whole different matter. And in practical use, like I was willing to give it a try, it introduced errors into the process. When using the remote to do stuff, I was found myself hitting the wrong button or accidentally inputting when I didn't want to. So uh, you know, that's that's the the all the other stuff falls by the wayside in, in light of that. Now, as for the holding it in my hand the wrong way, this kind of came up with the puck mouse too, the the IMAX puck mouse that was exactly circular. Some people really like that mouse. Uh, i I always make take pains to say that whenever we talk about it, because it gets such a bad rap, but some people really liked it because it was very low profile and it was circular. and I think the ball was dead center in the middle of it. So it felt kind of good to use, but it had this one problem that was, you know, dominant over everything else. And that was when you put your hand on it without looking, it was sometimes difficult to figure out which way was directly up. And then you would push what you thought was directly up and the cursor would go off at an angle and people would get frustrated. So people came up with techniques of like, oh, I'll drape your fingers over it so you can feel what the cord is. And they put a little texture on the button where they dug out a little piece on the button so you could try to feel which way is up on the mouse so it's not completely symmetrically circular. Or people said, even without the bump and even without the cord, you should be able to feel which way it is. But the bottom line is that that one thing, the, the frustration of grabbing that mouse without looking and pushing it and having the mouse cursor not go the right way, that, that overwhelmed everything else that was good about that mouse for most people. And Apple eventually replaced it and gave everyone free mice at Macworld 2001. In New York so that's where I come down to that if you like the Apple TV remote bully for you Uh, Apple putting in the thing that lets you learn other remotes I think is great I didn't know that feature existed it makes me feel less bad about the remote but I definitely do not like the remote even though it has some aspects of it that are well designed and speaking of concave versus convex I forget if you mentioned this on the episode where we talked about Video game controllers, or two episodes we talked about video game controllers. The SNES controller in the US, X and Y were concave and A and B were convex if my memory serves. I tried to look this up in images and it's hard to tell in images and I don't have an SNES so I can't look. But in Japan they were not that way. So this idea of making some buttons concave and some buttons convex uh, gets a big thumbs up for me. And I wish more remotes did it but if your remote is the wrong size and the wrong shape and has sharp edges and scratches my grandfather's wouldn't end table then yeah you get booted out and I go for the bulbous piece of plastic so thank you Nick for your feedback continue to enjoy your Apple Road that's my follow up that was short right shortish
0: no I wouldn't say it was, it's a record but not bad
1: yeah want to do I our
0: second uh, sponsor and then we can get into the, the reality of the real topic
1: the real topic. There you go.
0: Well, you said that there was a, there was a small topic, but I've yeah. heard you say that before, and we talked for hours.
1: I think this will be a short one, so you should think of anything after I'm done with it. If you think that you want to throw at me, then I'll try to tackle unprepared.
0: Okay. Well, I'll work on something for you and see if I can All right. come up with it. Well, our, our second sponsor today is FreshBooks.com. John Syracuse is a recent FreshBooks convert.
1: It's true.
0: Painless Billing. So this basically what FreshBooks lets you do. It lets you focus on your work, not your paperwork. It's the fastest way to, most of all, invoice your clients. It also lets you track time. You can organize expenses. I love this service, and this is this is the way that it works. You want to send your client an invoice normally? What's the process? You launch a Pages or Word. You you pick one of their awful templates or templates, as you say, and. You fill it out with their information, you print it, you put it in an envelope, and you cross your fingers and hope they they actually get it. There's no way to know. Even if you email it to them, there's no way to really know. We're not using CC Mail. We don't get read receipts anymore. You just hope they get it. And then you hope they pay it. FreshBooks makes all this so much easier. They handle all of that. You want to send a, a physical printed invoice? They can do that for you. You want to send it. You want to, you know, do the modern thing and send them something via email—the little email that includes an option for them to print it out or send a PDF. You can do that too. That's how I invoice everybody. All of our sponsors, including I invoice FreshBooks with FreshBooks. And if you happen to be invoicing somebody who also uses FreshBooks, it just shows up right on their account and their incoming. They see it right there and they can pay it all within FreshBooks. It supports all of your favorite uh, payment processing gateways, like obviously they'll do PayPal, but they'll do Authorize.net, all the other big ones. You do 1099s at the end of the year, they've got a plug-in for that, lets you handle and automate the process, sending 1099s. I wish I'd known about that last year. You can try it free for 30 days. And this is the way that works. You can try it free. You can try the maximum plan for 30 days. You can get all of your employees using it and tracking their time. You can do all your invoicing with it if you like it after 30 days, you pay for it. If you don't like it, well, obviously you don't have to because there's no commitment. But I think you will. I would check it out. FreshBooks.com.
1: Wouldn't it be funny if FreshBooks didn't want you to invoice FreshBooks with FreshBooks? They like said, oh, please send me your invoice as a Word document.
0: You know, I, the first the first time that I invoiced them, uh, I, I sent it in a more traditional way. And they're like, come on, why aren't you using FreshBooks? <laughs> and <laughs> so I go. did, and, and, and you know... Seeing the dog food. That's right.
1: All right. My topic today, you already talked about this, but I wanted to have some discussion of it too. All right. It's Apple China and Mike Daisy. I don't think we've ever talked about Apple and China on the show and a lot of people have asked about it. And I think the confluence of the Mike Daisy thing and everything provides yeah. an opportunity to talk about
0: it. Great, great
1: idea. Yeah. And so i, I I think the show that you talked about this the most on was the talk show, at least the one that I've listened to so far, where you had a long discussion with uh, John Gruber about the Mike Daisy thing. And on past shows, you've talked with him about China in general and Apple in China and all sure. that stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now, you've so, actually been to China. You've visited these factories. So you have the firsthand knowledge that a lot of us don't have to, to Canada.
1: I've been to Canada once. Does that count? I've never been to China.
0: Is there a big difference?
1: I'm told yes, especially since I went to Newfoundland.
0: Oh, to to pick up one of those hounds.
1: (laughs) No, no. That's the only other country I've ever been to. though. Okay. Unless Florida counts. I I think
0: that's more like a a territory. Yeah.
1: So, Mike Daisy has this one-man show called The Agony and Ecstasy of Steve Jobs. And this show has been around for a while and I've known about it for a while because these are the kind of circles I travel in. And you might assume, and many people have asked me, "Oh, The the Agony and Ecstasy of Steve Jobs, have you heard about that? Are you going to go to that? You might assume since I'm the one who reads all these books about Steve Jobs, even ones I don't like, and uh, you know, uh, I'm a big fan of him that I would be very interested in this show. But even before I knew anything about Mike Daisy and anything about the show other than the title, right away I had no interest in this thing. Because combine that title with what I have in my mind as, you know, what one man show like monologue type things are about and it just this is unfair, but this is the first impression that I have based just on the title and the fact that it's a monologue knowing nothing about Mike Daisy, was that it was going to be a polemic. It was going to be uh, the agony and the ecstasy. This was all around the same time as the, the bios are coming out and when he died and everything. It's like, uh, he makes such amazing things, but he was such a bad person. And it was some, you know, anything that's on the stage is going to be dramatic. And you know they're going to focus on how he was a big jerk and all this. I, I didn't know it had anything to do with China stuff. It was just like... I'm not interested in seeing that because I read all these books about it. I, I've experienced all this stuff. I don't need maybe if someone never knew who Steve Jobs was, this would be a way to introduce them to it. Maybe see a one man show and it would uh, be dramatic interpretation of his life. And it would be a, an entertaining way for people to learn about Steve Jobs who are never going to read some, you know, dry biography about it or anything. Uh, but I wasn't interested in it at all. And so I just basically ignored it, like, oh, this guy's doing the show, whatever. I don't care about this show because I'm not interested in someone telling me what I should think about Steve Jobs. I feel like I have a grasp on that. Uh, so then there was the Amer- This American Life episode. And uh, he- Mike Daisy was on this episode and he was, on, he was on the episode, both interviewed by the host and also an excerpt from his live show. And the excerpt and the interview were about labor practices in China, which by this point I had heard a lot about from other news stories and stuff. The New York Times did a thing on it and it's been covered everywhere and all the tech press. And so I figured, even though I'm not interested in this guy's show, why don't I hear... I am interested in This American Life. This is a show I listen to all the time. Why don't I hear what he has to say on that show? And so I listened to the episode and it was the the most downloaded episode of This American Life or whatever. Uh, And when I heard him on that show... I was like, when I heard the sections from his monologue, I'm like, yeah, this is pretty much about what I expected. When I heard him interviewed and everything, I figured, yeah, this guy is like what I expected. And I believed everything he said in that show. And so now, of course, it's come out that Mike Daisy has fabricated a lot of the stuff. I've asked myself, why did I believe everything he said in in the excerpt of the show that was on in This American Life, and why did I believe everything he said in the interview? So, the first reason is that uh, when listening to this, I didn't pay much attention to the timeline. So it seemed to me when listening to the story that I didn't think about, like, how long was he actually in China? Was he there for three days, you know, or was he there? I just assumed he was there for a good long time to talk to all these different people. So one of the things that the that one of the people who debunked his claims noticed was that, hey, this guy was only in China for six days. How could you possibly have found all these people and talked to all these people in a short period of time? So when I was listening to This American Life Obviously, in a radio show, everything is compressed and they didn't discuss timeline that much. Or if they did, I didn't notice it. So that did not ring any warning bells for me that it wouldn't be possible for this guy to learn this much in this amount of time. Second thing is I don't know much about China. So when he says, for example, that the Security guards at the gates of Foxconn have guns. He says in this dramatic way that they have guns, and I'm like, right. oh, yeah, of course they have guns. Don't security guards at every important factory in the United States? Like, don't, of course they have guns. Everybody has guns. It didn't, you know. I'm like, i oh, roll rolling my eyes. Like, oh, they have guns. They're going to shoot me dead because they're mean, right? Uh, no, like I said, the security guards at all factory have guns. But if anyone knew anything about China, which the guy who debunked this story did, what was his name? Rob Schmitz or something? Uh, he said, well security guards in China can't have guns only the military and the police have guns so his story is suspect but I didn't know that about China so one, the other reason I believed him is that the things that were that were warning bells to people who knew about China didn't ring anything for me because I just don't know much that much about China um, but the final thing is that everything he said in that show had been reported elsewhere uh, in terms of category so underage children working we've seen reports of that everywhere dangerous chemicals hurting people seen reports of that before Long work hours, he reports about the suicides in the nets. That was like last year, even the year before. All all those things categorically, like, do these things happen in China? Yes, they do. Do these things happen in China related to technology manufacturing? Yes, they do. So when he gave his specific instances of, I met this person who was like this, and I saw these people, and I did that, it, he didn't convince me that things were worse than they expected because I was already predisposed to think that everything he was going to say was going to be overly dramatized and exaggerated for effect. Uh, so when he said all these stories, I'm like, yeah, all right, I'm sure you did meet some guy like that. Yeah, that sounds plausible. Yeah, the, you saw underage workers. Yeah, probably did, stuff like that. All right, so this week or maybe last week or whatever it was, uh, we, we find out that he made up these things, that he didn't meet these people, that he didn't sit outside the gates for 10 minutes and meet a bunch of underage people, that he didn't find some guy who had just crippled by uh, working on the line. He didn't show an iPad to someone and have this dramatic moment where he says, wow, it's magical. I've never seen any new role. He just made all that up. He made it all up. Uh, now, despite uh, when, when I believed him, when, you know, before the, all this, this stuff had come out that he fabricated, I had also seen him on Real Time with Bill Maher, which is an HBO show that has a bunch of political type people on. And when I saw him on that show, I, I already went in having an opinion that this was going to be a guy who was like, making everything dramatic and uh, overblowing everything. But I thought, you know, maybe I'm just being unfair. I think this is the first time I actually just started with this. This is the first time I saw him interview. This was before this American Life episode or concurrent with it, or I hadn't listened to it yet. So he sits down in a chair across from Bill Maher, who, for people who don't know, is a comedian, a comedian in the United States. And he's on HBO, which is a a cable network where he's allowed to curse and, and be lewd and do all these things. So it's kind of like an adult type show. And he's actually a pretty tough interviewer because he will call people on their BS. And so he's sitting across from Bill Maher and talking to him, and listening to that interview further reinforced the idea in my mind that this guy is not out to make sure he's fair to anybody. He has got an agenda. He's got an axe to grind. He's not interested in balance. And when Bill Maher would push back or ask him questions, he would he would deflect. He his he had an agenda. Uh, he had something that he wanted to do, and I'm like, this guy is not in, interested in the figuring out what's really going on. He's not a reporter. He's not a journalist. Obviously, he's an actor. I shouldn't have thought that he was or whatever. But some people can be fair-minded. You know, like, for example, if you were to put me on some sort of show and, uh, and I had some sort of cause, it would not be very difficult to get me into a one-hour monologue uh, against myself. <laughs> you know, sort of telling you why my position, you know, giving the counterpoint to all of my points. Because that's just how my brain works. This guy was not interested in any of the counterpoints to any of his points. He was only interested in selling what he had to sell, his, his story of uh, of things. And I think the story that Mike Daisy tells himself uh, is that he's using his art to affect social change. He feels for the workers. He f- he empathizes with them. He thinks that what's happening to them is an injustice, and he wants to write that injustice uh, any possible way that he can. Uh, now, in Gruber's show, he points out that Even if you were 100% cynical and thought Apple was totally in the wrong here and, you know, and it was motivated only by selfish concerns and there's nothing altruistic about Apple, the company at all, it would still be in Apple's best interest to avoid, for example, underage workers because there's no upside for Apple using underage workers. If there was a labor shortage and the only workers they could get were underage, you could say it's in Apple's interest to use underage workers because otherwise they can't meet their capacity. You know, they can't they can't manufacture a capacity. Therefore, it's in Apple's interest to hire underage workers and hide it. But that's not the case. All reports out of China from everybody say that anytime these companies hire, they have way more app, way more adult applicants than they could possibly hire. So there is no worker shortage in China. And. So there's no upside for Apple hiring underage workers.
0: That's true. And if if anything, you would think that the uh, workers who are a little bit older, I'm not saying elderly, but just older, would have maybe a better skill set perhaps and more to lose if they were to screw the job up. I don't know what yeah, the mentality is. It's not is. like
1: uh, Schindler's List where the little fingers can get into the shell casings. You know, right, that's, not, right. that's not the the situation here, right? And there's a massive downside, of course, of bad publicity, right? So that that was Gruber's argument to say, like, do you even just be assume that there's not an altruistic bone in Apple's corporate body that it would simply not be in their interest to hire underage workers. Uh, but what I think critics think about this and what I think Mike Daisy thinks, and just like everybody who is against this, this and this, this is people don't, I don't think people will ever come out and say this, but I think if they examine what they're feeling and thinking, like if you, if you, uh, if you're like Mike Daisy and you think that you empathize with the workers and you think it's an injustice and you want to write this injustice, that's the story you're telling yourself, and the story you, you tell yourself about Apple is that Apple does this because they're mean apple Apple as a company is a mean company, so yeah, like because that that's what Gruber was getting at because he was saying like why why is it that you think Apple would do this?" and the people who are criticizing Apple for these things generally don't think to themselves well let me let me look at it this way what is apple's is apple motivated? Is there some sort of uh, perverse incentive system for apple to to hire uh, underage workers? And in the specific case of underage workers, I don't think there is any real incentive for them to do it. But the people who, like Mike Daisy who complain about this and are critical of it, the underlying assumption is that Apple is mean because big corporations are mean. We learn that. Like, they exploit the workers. They're only interested in the dollar. They're, they're basically doing it to be mean because they're not nice people, right? And I, I simply don't believe that. I simply don't believe Apple as a corporation or most corporations for that matter are doing things out of cruelty. Sometimes there are incentives to do things like, uh, for example, you know, making making people work in dangerous conditions in mines because that's the way you get the gold out or whatever. Like, th- The corporation is incentivized to damage its workers in that case. But in the particular case of underage workers, I think there is no incentive for Apple to do that. Working hours, on the other hand, there is an incentive. And that incentive is you get more production out of it. Right? So... There is some corporate incentive to make people work too long. And that is a more complex issue, as is I think the person, uh, when, when This American Life did a later episode that was a retraction because of the fact that many of these things were fabricated. In the retraction episode, they had a reporter from the New York Times come on and he talked about the overtime issue and said it's actually more complex because the workers, like many workers who are hourly, they want some overtime because you get, you know, it's good to have overtime. You get more money, right? And the, so it's not as if you could say, oh, they're, they're making the workers work too much. These workers should never have to work overtime. No, they wouldn't be happy with that. But on the other hand, the wor- some of the workers say that if you do not accept the overtime that they give you, any overtime and all overtime, they'll say, "Okay, well, I guess you're just not interested in overtime. I'll give it to someone else." And right. that's bad because it's like if you don't, if I don't do overtime every time you ask me to do it, I don't get any overtime. So that's a situation where uh, Apple's corporate interests may not be aligning with the, you know what we think is is right and just. Uh, so. Mike Daisy, if you listen to him on that show, is obviously a serial fabricator and cannot bring himself to, he he continues to tell himself the story about him writing an injustice with all the tools at his disposal and never wants to, at least on the show, never wants to examine like, why do I feel the need to lie about this? Why did I manufacture these things? I think he could have had just as dramatic and effective a show if you didn't make up stuff. The, the things that we know that are happening there are real and you don't need to say, oh, I was there, I saw it. It happened to me within the six-day period for it to be dramatic. Like, you can you can do one of two things. You can either talk about the things that happen even though you weren't there in a dramatic fashion or you can simply say, this is a dramatization and this didn't really happen to me but it could have because we've, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think a dramatization is any less moving or powerful to say all the things that are in this dramatization have happened but the characters and people in it are fictional including me and I'm going to include myself in it both of those ways were perfectly valid ways out but he just he he chose to lie about it and even when caught in the lie continue, you know just says you know adds lies on top of lies and we'll, you know he comes down in degrees like well okay that was a lie but really I did see that person okay well I didn't see that person but uh, someone else saw that person, or maybe that person was maybe my translator was distracted and she didn't see me meeting with those people. Just always ratcheting down and bargaining. He can never, you know, gets caught in a lie and can never just admit that he was lying. So he is not a good person, and I don't like him, and I don't like his show, and I never did, and I think it was awful. Uh, so that's Mike Daisy. I, I, I never brought him up because I didn't want to talk about him specifically because I think it's a waste of time. Mm. Uh, I don't even think he what he does in terms of raising awareness is worthwhile. I think the, the the long series of New York Times articles was a much more powerful way to to affect change in this area and to apply pressure to Apple because I really think Apple cares more about uh, multi-day front-page stories from the New York Times than it does about a one-man show about Steve Jobs. Uh, and if anything, him coming out with these fabrications and everything lessens his cause because now people anytime they hear anything about China and Apple is all like. Oh, well, you know, I heard those were all debunked. Even though those things still continue to happen because this guy had to lie about a bunch of stuff that didn't happen to him, now that's out in the air. So that's a big mess. So I think he's bad. Uh, but the the larger point about Apple in China, uh, I think I had Apple in China in one of my old shows, but I never actually got to it. The larger point I want to make about Apple in China is that I question, I'm sure this comes up in most things, but this is the main concern in my mind. I question how much control Apple really has over what happens in China. The two sides of this are, one, Apple is the biggest customer. They're the biggest company in the whole world. They've got these manufacturers on a the string. These manufacturers are killing themselves to compete for Apple's business. If Apple says jump, they're going to ask how high Apple can make anything happen. Uh, and the other side of this is, Apple can't control what goes on in China. Apple is not Foxconn. Uh, you know, there's, there's no way Apple can make things happen in China. And in that continuum, I'm more on the side that Apple's ability to affect change in China is extremely limited. I don't doubt that all these manufacturers will, will, you know, tell, you know, Apple will say jump and they will say how high, Mr. Apple, whatever you want. They are really killing themselves for Apple's business. It's a prestige business. There's lots of volume. It just has many positive effects to these companies. They want Apple's business and they're just in those meetings with Apple. That's why Apple negotiates such great deals with them because Apple is in a strong negotiating position. But I also believe those companies will say anything to get the contract and then will do whatever the hell they want. They will try to get away whatever they can get away with. If Apple says we're going to have random inspections and stuff like this, It's all about, oh yes, Apple, we're doing everything you say and then totally lying through their teeth and doing the opposite. Exploiting workers, making them work overtime, hiring on everything. Everything that these companies have been accused of, I feel like they are doing simply because corruption is rampant in China in general. Uh, There is no great oversight and it's not a free country where you can have this type of oversight on top of everything. The, 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 the manufacturers and the Chinese government itself is not incentivized to do what Apple says. They're incentivized to make Apple think they're doing what they say. And maybe sometimes the easiest way to do that is to actually do what they say. But I think these, these people are not acting in good faith. And Apple's own reports about uh, how the compliance shows that over years and years, their compliance has not really been getting much better. Uh, And that's with Apple's inspections. I don't even think Apple's inspections are even finding all the problems that are there because I think these companies are excellent at hiding the things that they're doing wrong. Uh, And so what do you do if you're Apple if you know you have these manufacturers that are out there, that you really want them to do the right thing and you have this code of conduct and they're just simply not complying? And you say, well, just don't manufacture in China. Uh, And, you know, uh, manufacture in the United States instead. As many people have talked about on, on various programs and in the New York Times... It's not just the cost of labor. It's not like, oh, if you had to pay American workers, it would cost more. It's the supply chain. It's that all the manufacturers are in the same place. It's that all the factories are, are in geographically in the same place, so all the parts are together, so you don't have to wait two weeks or something to go on a boat uh, to get to you. If Apple were to move all of its manufacturing to the United States, so it would just bump the cost of your iPhone 20%. First of all, even that would be untenable because people would scream bloody murder and their sales would go down, their share would go down, their stock price would go down, and be bad. But even ignoring that, it would be a competitive disadvantage to them. Because all their stuff would be someplace else. And by the way, if you just move the final assembly to the United States, it still means all the people making all the widgets in China are still being exploited or whatever. So I think Apple is doing the right thing here. It's not saying, well, forget it. We have to write off China entirely because these guys lie to us and they're not being compliant, so we have to do something else. We're going to manufacture every single piece of this in the United States at tremendous cost and triple the cost of our phones or whatever. And again, it's not the labor. It's, it's the factories and the staffing and the people who oversee the factories and hiring all those people. It's a logistics nightmare that's just, you know, even if you said everything comes to the United States and you just pick one state and everyone flocks to that state, you need thousands and thousands of highly qualified manufacturing engineers who don't even exist in the United States or exist and are employed and you have to make them all quit their jobs and it's just, you, know, I mean, you have to get these factories, they have to be built and they cost billions of dollars to build. It's not like you can just, you know, make, snap your fingers and they appear. It's just simply not possible to move all that stuff that's there that took decades to build up and move it here. They have the people, they have the expertise, they're all geographically located near each other. So moving manufacturing out of China does not seem like an option to me. And the only option is to try to work with the Chinese to say, geez, we'd really like you to comply with these labor uh, restrictions that we have. And we'd really like it if you didn't lie to us. And we'd really like it if our random inspections were really random. And if year over year, you got better. And I think Apple is applying pressure there, but what can Apple do short of firing them? That's their own, like, Apple can't, can't, you know, Apple can move its business elsewhere to another company that does exactly the same things in China, which is, you know, it's not that's 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 all it can do to punish somebody is to put the business elsewhere. And Apple does spread its business around like some of it is with one manufacturer, some of it with another, mostly just for redundancy and to and to protect itself. Uh, I really don't know what Apple can do to be 100% sure that it's really causing them to change their ways. And I feel for Apple in this regard because they're be- they're between a rock and a hard place because I really believe that Apple, not because they're altruistic, but just from a business perspective, Apple does not want this stuff to go on. They don't want people working on the assembly lines till they die. They, they don't want uh, underage people working there because it's all downside, not upside. There's plenty of able-bodied people there. Don't pay them overtime. Put in a different worker on a different shift and pay them normal time. You know, like... It, it, but you know, some people in the New York Times thing on, on This American Life, the, the guy was saying that Apple brings this on by negotiating such harsh deals with the manufacturers, so there's so little profit left for them, they have to cut corners to make their money. Again, I say that's on the manufacturers. Don't put in a bid that you know you will have to exploit your workers to uh, to comply with the terms of. And and what can Apple do there? Say, look. If you're bidding, you have to comply with our code of conduct. So keep that in mind. And they say, yes, yes, oh, yeah, we'll definitely comply. Here's our bid. And so they pick the lowest bidder who has the best quality standards and, and has produced the best stuff. And then those people exploit their workers. And it's like, well, I, you know, all right, you've lost the deal because you're not being compliant. I'm going to go to the next guy. And the next guy does the same thing. I I think Apple, this is a problem that needs to be addressed, but I think Apple's ability to make other companies in China, like literally make them do stuff, is very limited. Uh and I don't know the details of what they could be doing better or if they're not doing enough or how they can change the situation, but I think it would be much easier to get compliance from an American company simply because it's in America, which is slightly less corrupt than China. Slightly. <laughs> and uh, and all the same laws apply and you'd be closer to them as just... I don't know. So, that that's where I come down on the Apple and China thing. I think everything that's happening there is bad, uh, but I am i don't know enough to say how much more Apple could be doing, but I do, I do think that their ability to just snap their fingers and make everything comply is not as bad. And by the way, the meta point on this is that I think the people who manufacture our underwear are probably in a way worse conditions, like textile manufacturing, like everything that we have in this entire country is manufactured in some third world country by workers that are horribly exploited. Yeah, but uh,
0: you know what? I don't think that people in general are holding the sweatshops that make our clothing in especially high regard and talking about how life-changing, you know, their sweater is and almost worshiping the company that made their sweater. I'm not saying people don't, but I'm saying that, that that Apple is in receipt of great adoration uh, and admiration by a lot of people. And, and here it, it, you know, for whatever reason, and I'm sure there's a, there's a term for this that you can remind me of, but, People everywhere love to see something that is successful uh, exposed, even if it's a company that they love. It's it's quite exciting to find a great fault and some magical, uh, mysterious Achilles heel exposed, and say, "Oh, this company you thought was good that seemed to be doing so much good, whether it is or not. Uh, yeah, they're really bad because look at this that they knew about and they hit it, and they're really." All right. You know, they're really evil, and all along we thought they were good and everything it's, you believed was wrong, you know?
1: It's man bites dog versus dog bites man. One yeah. is a story, one's not. So once you've got a some a company that everyone admires, the story is they did something bad. Once you've got if you've got a company that's an underdog, the story is that actually they're good. So yeah, that flips whenever you become a leader. And and by the way, the the thing this is where this gets all hung up and I'll bring in a vaguely political thing here as an example, because it's the example I always think of. Uh, the Iraq war going into Iraq to get rid of Saddam Hussein, one of the big arguments against that, uh even when we thought all the evidence being presented was actually true, and we didn't know any better, but even even if you were to accept the evidence as true, you would say, "Well, all right, so Saddam Hussein's a bad person who does bad things to his people, and this actually was true uh, If we get rid of him like now we got what do we got to get to get rid of everybody?" Uh, what what is the new U.S. policy? Every, t- every, place, every country that has a bad leader, we go in and overthrow that leader and put in a new one and fix the countries. Uh, that's not a tenable policy. And I never found that a compelling argument against going in. There are many other, much more compelling arguments against going in. But that particular argument was, yes, doing this would be good, but there are many other things that are just as bad, and if we don't fix all of them, it's not worth fixing one. So that's the argument kind of like, the people who make my underwear are are working in horrible conditions. Therefore we shouldn't fix working conditions in China. There, there are situations in the world where the same bad thing is happening in many different places and fixing one of them is still good. Even if you can't fix all the other ones. So anyone, you know, this comes up all the time in arguments and stuff. Anyone says there's probably a term for this, but I don't know it either that we shouldn't do this because if you do this and you don't do that same thing in these 10 other places, that's like hypocritical and you shouldn't do that. Doing one good thing is better than doing zero good things. So I don't think the fact that everyone who manufactures all of our stuff is working in conditions that no American would want or picking our fruit for that matter or anything even in this country, out of this country, all those workers who have it worse than we do, addressing one of those situations is is not something we shouldn't do because, well, if you address that one, there's still all these other people. What about the people that pick the strawberries? What about the people that make the t-shirts? What about the people that assemble the Nikes? But that's true of all those people. Uh, but if we can fix it in one place, and I think China is a good place to try simply because they are so clearly like on their road to the middle class. Like, you know, China, 50 years ago, people are on farms, right? And mud huts or whatever. And now they're working in a factory uh, where the working conditions are something that no American would want. But it's, you know, and I'm not even going to say they're happier than they were when they were on the farms. But it's clearly on the path. You can see the progression for that to living in the city to, uh, you know, saving some money to your kids having a better life than you do. We've all, any industrialized country has sort of been through this and gone through their own sort of industrial revolution where the kids are getting ground up into the meat and being put in cans and the <laughs> triangle shirt factory fire and all sorts of, right. you know, like every country has gone through this and it is painful us to say like, look, we already went through it and we were kind of the first ones, us in England and, you know, the first world, quote unquote. So like we, we know where the ending is. Come with us, we'll skip you to the end. But it seems like it's very difficult to get these other countries to skip to the end. But China at least... Like, there's a rising, certainly a rising upper class of the crazy rich people in China. Uh, But there is a rising, not middle class, but, like, lower middle class or whatever. So, it's probably easier to get something to happen in China than it is to, like, go to Bangladesh or something and try to get those people to skip from literally living in mud huts to, you know, having a car and an iPhone themselves. Uh, So, it's... Basically, you know, this, as you pointed out, this is a story because it's a, a man by dog story and it's just, things make good stories when they're, you know, when it's unexpected or the opposite of what you would expect. So the company that makes the expensive products that everybody loves, that everyone thinks is great, uh, they're manufactured in third world countries. Same right. thing with Nike, by the way, because Nike had a, such image back in the Michael Jordan days. And I was like, but did you know these Nike shoes are manufactured by poor people in horrible conditions? Which is all true. Uh, that's why that's a story. But it's, this is like a this is a world problem. It's not not an Apple problem. It's not a technology problem. It's not a China problem. This is a world problem that there's inequality and wealth in the world and on every possible level and every pro- even within the country. You know th- this this problem exists. So this story quickly becomes so large that people tend to just not want to think about it. So I think it's good that there has that. And for the record, Apple's- I mean,
0: you you know, Apple. It, you can read about what Apple's do. Apple's trying to make it better. Some companies aren't trying to make it better.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know if anybody's not. I think every company is motivated to try. Uh, it, it's, it's. I think it's right to question, like, why did Apple address this on their own? Why are they only doing it? Seemingly only doing it in response to bad press, starting in like 2000, early 2000s, or whatever. This is how the system is supposed to work. The press finds things that are bad. Companies respond to it because they don't want bad press. This is an example of you know, because companies are motivated to just make as much money as they can, even if they are altruistic. It's very easy to slip into doing things that are bad, and the press is a counterbalance to that. The press in China, perhaps less so, because they're not quite as free as they are here to write whatever they want about anybody. So yeah, the whole of China, I think uh, when we did discuss this briefly, I said that China is due for a giant bloody revolution because you simply cannot go from uh, an agrarian society to the first world while maintaining a a dictatorship, communist dictatorship government the whole way through. So something's going to happen there, and I think it will be nasty and bad for everybody, including all of us who want our goods manufactured cheaply in China.
0: Would you like to do our last sponsor? That's a good idea. What would you like to do it?
1: How do I do it? Is it BBEdit?
0: It is.
1: (laughs) I I don't have nothing to read about BBEdit, but I can talk about them for a moment.
0: You've used BBEdit longer, I think, even than John Gruber, which is longer than anybody else that I know.
1: Yeah. Every working day of my life, including when I was working almost full-time in my last year of college, I would go to work every day, sit down in front of a Macintosh brand computer, and type into BBEdit. And long before I was working, I was using BB edit on my you know to, to to do my work to do everything that having to do with my schoolwork. I've used BB edit since probably version two two point five ish somewhere maybe two point five. Uh, it is by far my favorite text editor on any system, and yes, I've used Emacs and VI and v i m or Vim, if you're nasty. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it it literally ha still has more like Emacs, has more features. Than I have ever seen. There are still features in BBEdit that I did not know exist that I discover. I think only like a few years ago I discovered that BBEdit has multiple clipboards in the application. I'd used it for at that point like a decade and a half, and I didn't know that. And to this day, <laughs> I, I didn't continue, know that. I, did you know it has its own native support for multiple clipboards? And the best time to find this is when I found it was like this is before I had a system-wide a global clipboard manager on. that like you copied something, but then you copied something else and you overwrote the thing that you copied. like, oh, no, I lost that data. No, you didn't. It's actually BBEdit that kept track of it and you bring up the clipboard window, hit control, left arrow, or whatever it is to go back through the clipboard history, and there it is. Best moment ever. And BBEdit is full of things like that. Uh, And and for an application that's been around as long as BBEdit has, they continue to modernize it, continue to update it. They, They recently redesigned their preferences window, which had been the same forever. You know, everything about this application, sort of like Photoshop CS6, it continues to evolve. Don't think this is an application you're going to load it and think this looks like it was made in 1992. It doesn't. It looks like a modern application uh, and it gets more modern every day. Reshuffling where things are, uh, adding support for things like Dropbox where you can put your application support folder in, in the Dropbox folder and all your scripts and customizations are synced between them. It's like iCloud before iCloud. Uh, so I cannot recommend BB Edit enough. Anybody do any text editing on the Mac, even if you say, oh, well, I like to write in like ByWord or something where you write your prose or whatever, there is a role for BBEdit in everybody's life, even if you're not a programmer, for <laughs> just a plain text editor. People don't know what a text editor is. It's a text editor. It's not styled text. It's not page layout. It is literally for doing text. Uh, and and if you are a programmer or something, you should definitely have this. It will handle your giant 10-megabyte uh, Apache log files. You can search through them and do search and replace. You can process the lines, sort the lines. Uh, full, full Perl grep, regular expression support, it is power tool for text i don't know what the actual ad copy is for bb edit but i cannot recommend this product highly enough
0: it's better than any ad copy i have thank you john so you can go to bbedit.com you can go to barebones.com and uh, you can download a free trial which is uh, what i recommend you do it's really the best way to get an idea for it you can buy it right there on the site you know what it's only it's only 50 bucks
1: yeah, I can't believe that. I've been uh, buying BB Edit since it was like triple-digit prices. Like this, <laughs> BB Edit used to be much more expensive. And I guess since like the advent of the Mac App Store and the, the readjustment of pricing, I don't know what it is that it caused the prices to go down. It used to be like you do an upgrade for like 70 bucks. Like if you'd bought it, you bought it for 125 or 130 And right. then like, oh, I get the upgrade to the next major version for 70 And you felt like it was a great deal. Oh, I'll get the next version for only 70 bucks. I don't have to buy it again for 120 Now you get the whole thing outright for $50. bucks. It is unbelievably cheap, unbelievably cheap.
0: You can get it there, or you can get in the App Store to search for BB Edit. So try it out. Yeah. And it's made in America.
1: (laughs) Well, Rhode Island, I mean. (laughs) Is that America? I don't
0: know if that counts. A little bit
1: bit different. It's more America
0: than Florida, for sure.
1: Yeah, I guess. So that's all I had for my stuff here. What have you got for me?
0: Well, you know, I was thinking about it all week long, and I actually was going to spring. If, if you hadn't talked about the Mike Daisy thing, that was going to be the thing that I was going to spring on you.
1: Yeah, no. That's... But you
0: did. You hit it. So that was, uh, you know, on my list of big topics for the week. I was wondering if you wanted to go into a little bit of detail at all. Well, I don't know if we have time for it. About the progressive JPEG thing.
1: The thing that Duncan Davidson just put up?
0: Yeah. Um basically he uh he discovered that there are some issues where, you know, of course you I don't know, do we have time for this? we save to it you. for the why don't we save it for the next show? We'll yeah, save it for the next
1: show. Because it's whole, a big topic. That whole top well, Kim I have only read a little bit about this, so at least tell me this uh if you've read more on it than I have. Has been determined to anyone in satisfaction whether this is a bug or a decision it seems
0: at least from what i read and i'll I'll tell you what i'll go ahead and i'll put this into the show notes so people who want to get a jump start and uh, learn more about what we're talking about Um, friend of a friend of mine uh, james duncan davidson he's a photographer uh he was very curious about getting things to look good photographs in particular getting them to look good on the retina display because obviously if you have a, just a regular exported for the web style image, 72 DPI type image, it's, it might not look that great on your retina display when you're browsing around on the web. So yes, you can, uh, you can double uh, the size of the image, which is the technique that many, you know, designers and developers uh, have done but it turns out that there's a webkit limit on retina jpeg images and he ran into this and he he goes into great detail explaining these different tests and w- what's actually happening uh but the the interesting part is what happens if you pixel double an image that gets too big it doesn't actually display it properly at all so there's a, there's a whole uh conversation about this but what what the answer is apparently is that you need to use a uh, progressive JPEG in order to make things work correctly. And um, he says, okay. okay. He says, rotate to landscape orientation and tap the image and wait for a second or three and maybe a bit longer for the high-res image to load. He says, uh, and then here is a, an image that looks, you know, amazing uh, and and looks really good on the retina display compared to the, the other one. And anyway, this is a topic I'd like for you to weigh in on, but maybe uh, you can do a little homework first.
1: Yeah, I, I think right now, when I know of it, it seems like a bug, because the fact that it works with pings and doesn't work with JPEGs, but works with progressive JPEGs, and I think I saw one other report of saying, like, it's actually not a hard size limit. If you go above that limit, but you're a multiple of 16 in one dimension, that it works. <laughs> oh, that that does sound like more like a bug. This all sounds like a bug, but I think the the, the meta problem is, so you got these double-res displays now. We've had it for a while on the iPhone, but now we have it on the iPad. And for some reason, when it was on the iPhone, people weren't so concerned about like, oh, you got to put double size images on your web pages or they'll look bad. Uh, but from what I've seen, I haven't seen, still haven't seen an iPad 3 in person, but from what I've seen in people taking pictures of it, it really is true that if you take a, a non-retina image, like a regular image that's supposed to show as five inches by five inches on an iPad 2, and you show that exactly the same size, five inches by five inches on an iPad 3 without increasing the resolution any, And it may So, for example, for every pixel on the iPad 2 screen, four pixels appear on the iPad 3 screen. It really does look worse in pictures anyway. I haven't seen it in person. And it seems counterintuitive. Like, isn't it exactly the same thing? What do I care if it's four white pixels versus one white pixel? Shouldn't they look exactly the same? Like, how could it possibly look worse? It's not worse. The exact same amount of information is being fed to the browser. And on the screen, those four pixels are exactly the same size as the one pixel. Why does it look worse? My theory, having not seen this in person, my theory is that it looks worse because one white pixel when you do the ratio of how much of the area of that one white pixel emits light versus how much doesn't emit light on the retina display there's more non-light emitting area so you've got the, the creases you know the little gaps between each pixel and then the gaps between the pixels there uh, and that's why i'm theorizing that it does look worse but in all the pictures people have taken photos of their ipad two and three screens it's dramatic the difference between the same exact picture on the three and two screen when you don't have something that has added information for the retina display. Perhaps just as dramatic if you do have retina information then the iPad 2 screen looks like crap. Uh, So suddenly people are very, very motivated to get good-looking images in. And the browser, WebKit and Safari, report to the browser that the screen is exactly the same size as the iPad 2. So it's not as if, you know, you can do detection and say... uh, you know, it, it's that's why it displays them in that blurry type fashion. It says, "Up, oh, you know, 400 pixels. I will show it in 800 pixels, but don't tell anyone. I'm still it's still 400 pixels here." You know, uh, to the quick one, if you want to do that, I think it was a web page that referenced this was just just give it the 800 pixel image, but in the image tag, put the 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 width and height as 400. Yeah, that's the most barbaric way to just at least get this to work. But then you're feeding everybody a double size image whether they need it or not. I mean, you could do this for years. I remember back in the day. That practice was heavily frowned upon. Do you remember why that practice was heavily frowned upon? Because
0: bandwidth was such a commodity, and everybody's connection was so slow. So you'd be sending them an image that was way bigger than anybody could ever hope to display, and yeah, you were and, costing them time and money in the process.
1: But the, the the biggest reason, you know, that was true. We're talking about when we're talking big. We're talking about like, oh, you, are you sending a four hundred by five hundred image? That's <laughs> right. too big. You this can't way send. Too know, big. This was thing. But the the main reason that I always avoided on my web pages was because in Internet Explorer, they were using like nearest neighbor scaling, and it ah, looked, awful, looked awful like IE 3. <laughs> so like the Mac versions would always scale. it, You'd know, you, would, you would have a page of thumbnails, and all those thumbnails would actually be the full-size versions, both width and height, set differently on the image tags. And yeah, it would be a big bandwidth with hog, and uh, you know, you'd take a while to download. But at least the Mac would shrink them and do a reasonable job of shrinking them. But on IE, they would look like these scrambled pieces of mess. It was just untenable as a web practice because everyone was using IE, and IE refused to scale. Nowadays, all browsers pretty much scale images in a way that wouldn't make you embarrassed to have it on your web page. So you could, in theory, serve up uh, you know, an 800 by 400 version of your header image and set the width and height to uh, you know, 400 by 200. Uh, and, but the only thing you're doing there is you're still wasting bandwidth. And now that images are so much larger, the bandwidth is still a concern because suddenly the big version of our images are really humongous, especially if it's a ping and something that doesn't have as much lossy compression as a JPEG or something. That's a lot of extra bandwidth that you're feeding, especially to mobile people. So, there are various ways to get around that. Of course, you can use JavaScript if you want to do anything with JavaScript. You can also use CSS media queries to say serve, you know, to not set the image in the image tag, but set it as a background image property, and then use uh, media queries to select the uh, what is it like WebKit resolution. There's there's various uh vendor specific uh, media queries that you can do within the CSS to say only apply this rule if the screen. Uh, has a uh, has this particular pixel density or this, these dimensions or whatever, and then uh, it only loads the image appropriate for that particular screen. But it's it's tricky. It's not as simple as just changing something inside the image tag. You either have to use CSS or you have to use JavaScript, and both of them have little peculiar peculiarities about them. I wonder if this is like a transitional period where like we're worried about these things, but eventually. Like, wouldn't you assume eventually that all screens will be a similar density? They'll all be around 260, 300 pixels per inch for some period of time. Yeah. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm naive thinking that, but it seems to me that that will eventually happen. And then it won't be, you know, then it won't be a matter of, oh, I got to figure out what I have to serve to what device or whatever. We'll just always be serving the high density one because everything is high density. Like, what, your, It's kind of weird that it started with the phone, but like your phone was the highest density screen we had and now it's your iPad. Eventually, it will come to the Mac. It's going the opposite direction that people thought. They're like, oh, technology will trickle down from the PC. Sort of like people say technology trickles down from PC gaming to console gaming. Well, this advanced technology will triple down from the PC into our, our tablets and eventually into our phones. Nope, it's going the reverse. Got our phone first and it makes sense from a screen manufacturing percent, uh, perspective because the fancier the screen the harder it is to make it big so you can make that screen that's super high density first that's much easier than making a panel that's you know eight times as big and then going all the way up to a 30-inch screen so that's how we're going but i assume eventually this won't be an issue simply because all of our screens will be around this density and then maybe we'll have a nice calm period and then they'll go up to like 1600 dots per inch or something when we're old and gray but yeah this is this is a uh a time, a time of bugs, let's call it. I'm calling this one a bug for now, and I'm okay. assuming it will be addressed in some way. But even without the bugs, there are things web developers, as always, as always, there are things web developers, new things web developers have to learn to continue to practice their craft at the top level. That's always been the case. Is that all you got? That's all I got. Did we get out? That's not a bad one. Yeah. It's way short than usual. There you go. I, I follow So through. people people who didn't get enough of you
0: can always follow you on Twitter Syracuse S I R A C U S A. They can read your 85 page review of Mac OS 10 Lion at Ars Technica and your other pieces there. And uh, you can hear all the previous episodes of this show going to 5 by 5.tv/hypercritical. You'll notice that uh, all of the links and things that were discussed during this show were carefully collected and organized by John. And you can find those there in the show notes. Just click on the episode in particular. This one's episode 60. We want to say thanks to the guys at uh, HelpSpot.com, the best help software in the business, for sponsoring that. And uh, I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter, if you want to follow me there. That's it, John. What else we got? That's it. Sponsors. Getboxapp.com. Freshbooks.com. Barebones.com. Yep. Done. Have a good week, John. You
1: too.